I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek problem. A smaller-than-expected increase for consumer prices. That the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, she calls it economics, I call it economics, but this week, whatever you call it, are we heading to a world where we only trade with our friends, or at least those who we can tolerate the most? What if China stops dealing with the West, the country which, even with the pandemic, has managed to increase its share of international trade. Over 15% of everything traded on this planet comes from China. So if we stop buying from them, who loses out? That's this week on the Debunking Economics Economics Podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, what if those BRICS nations, the which is Brazil, Russia, India and China, really did decide that they're going to form their own alliance uh, and cut back on the trade that they do with Western nations? And also, I mean, because this is part and parcel of it, if they form their own currency in the hope that it's uh, that 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 will make it easier for them to trade amongst themselves. And I guess also the strength will make it easier if they want to export to the West, then it's going to change the uh, export prices. It's going to make imports presumably more expensive and exports cheaper. So in a way, it's sort of like helping them to to develop their trade as well. Who would be, if that was to happen, the, the combination of more trade amongst themselves, less trade with the West, but also in effect saying we're going to have our own reserve currency, who would be the big winners and losers in that? I have a sneaking suspicion I know the answer. Well, I'd go for the BRICS themselves over over America yeah. because the extent to which America has de-industrialised itself over the last uh, 40 years is, is quite stunning. And uh, there's still a huge amount of uh, you know in manufacturing in America and certainly capacity to innovate, but an enormous part of their capacity has been outsourced to China and China has run very, very effectively with that uh, you know, and, and consequently, if if America uh, decides not to import from China anymore, it's got a huge investment task ahead of it to make up for the absence of the commodity that they can't currently produce in the scale they need for their market. Whereas China has got that capacity to produce for itself and can decide um, now that it doesn't really need the export market anywhere near as much. You can focus upon the domestic market and also other elements of the uh, other elements of the brick chain. So I'd, I'd I'd say America's the one would suffer, not uh, not the BRICS. Yeah, well, they're not getting the stuff that they've been importing. I mean, so so in twenty twenty one, it was about half a trillion US dollars worth of goods that the US took from China, uh, and only about a third of that went the other way. So so a massive trade deficit between uh, the US and, and China. And it's a real mix of stuff. So obviously, you know, electronic equipment's obviously, you know, we know that's a big thing. Uh, and that's, that, that, you know, the components that are being used for uh, for iPhones and the like. 134 billion of that. 114 billion for machinery, nuclear reactors, boilers, 
uh, furniture, lighting signs. <laughs> this is a bit specific. Prefab buildings, 39 billion. Toys and games and sports gear, 37 billion. And then clothing, 34 billion. Uh, so yeah, I mean you can see the lion's share of it is uh, is going in 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 that electrical area. So how much of that could the U.S. just say, well, okay, we're just going to move into those areas. We're just going to build our own uh, electronics industry. We'll we'll make the iPhone completely uh, in America rather than uh, relying on uh, on on cheaper labor elsewhere. Well, partly the, the whole hassle about it is how long does it take you to build the plants that enable you to make that transition, and how long does it take you to train the skilled labour that you absolutely essential, you know, vitally need to make those industries feasible in the first place. And that, that to me, is uh, what America has done since it started trying to exploit cheap labour in China and and China exploiting American capitalist desire to exploit cheap labour in China at the same time. Uh, that has been going on for pretty much 40 years. And therefore, you had 40 years of low investment by America, not just in the, in the physical machinery, but also in the people who can operate that physical machinery. And if you wanted to really make that change and say, okay, we're going to have Australian, uh, American operators of... Uh, of uh, you know computer computer controlled uh, cutting machines, uh, lathes, uh, uh, the the technicians you need, the metallurgists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're talking five years at least to start training the people, and probably five to ten years to build the plants. So while you do that, you're going to have rising costs, and I think this is part of what's actually is causing the inflation we're seeing right now. That the globalized supply chain is breaking down. And therefore, it's costing more to buy this stuff from overseas anyway. But if you want to replace it domestically, you've got an enormous investment project ahead of you. And the, the low cost you passed on to consumers to some extent out of exploiting what used to be cheap labor in China is no longer there. So your prices are going to rise. So to me, to me, it's a huge issue of both time and a need to to reskill a workforce you've deliberately de-skilled over the last four decades. Which is, I mean, that's going to take a long time, isn't it? Because you've got to see people th- coming up through the whole school system before that uh, is eventually realised. Uh, so generations <laughs> we're talking about, really. But what about, you know, even before that, I, I mean, do you think that we will see this shift? I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that actually China is exporting more than more than ever as a proportion of all global trade. But do you think we will start to see that wane and BRICS nations will trade amongst themselves? It's potentially going to happen. I mean, I think we're going to be forced into drastically reducing exports anyway uh, because there's an enormous amount of energy consumed in shipping these goods from one part of the planet to another. And those costs, uh, not forget about what it costs in terms of money to do that and forget about the comparative labour distances. We simply have to reduce carbon dioxide output and that's going to be forced upon us at some point and the whole supply chain will break down because we don't have solar-powered vessels or wind-powered vessels shipping. These are oil-powered. By the way, I'll give you... I got a a crazy example out of this uh, on Monday of of, uh, last week when I was in Finland for a a workshop organised by Simon Maichow, the uh, Australian uh, minerals... uh, mining engineer who's now working for the Geological Survey of Finland. And he gave the example of, um, I've forgotten it, it's it's canned salmon. And if you go shopping in Scotland, you can buy canned Scottish salmon or you can buy the fresh stuff down at the local market, but the canned stuff's going to be cheaper. And how's the canned stuff made? Well, it's simple. You've catched the salmon off the coast of of Scotland. You ship them to China. (laughs) 
you then make the steel in China, you put the salmon in the in the steel in China, and you ship it back to Scotland. And that's cheaper. And that's the than just it's cheaper than doing it domestically because of the well originally with the lower wage costs in China. Now it's of course the the capital equipment in China is far in advance of what would exist in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, but that. Now that means that that can of tuna has travelled twenty thousand miles, whereas the salmon that that you actually caught has travelled twenty miles, and the salmon in the can is cheaper. Yeah, that that is good. Now that's that, a crazy that, illustration, that isn't it? And, and the the amount of carbon dioxide generated in the process is enormous. So the carbon dioxide content of the salmon you go and buy at the local market, relatively trivial. The carbon content of the salmon you buy in the can, huge. And so at some point, those decisions are going to have to be made. We have to shut that down. And uh, but at the moment, it's it's happening through higher energy costs. Of yeah, course. but yeah, well, okay. So so maybe it will become more expensive, and then, then does that then mean that we do start to, uh, you know, the, the price mechanism? I know, I know how much you hate that, but the fact it is it is so prohibitively expensive to do it, perhaps increasingly uh, overseas, that we do start to do it domestically, and we we do acquire that but, expertise. Yeah, but we, we'll be re- it, 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 it will work, but it will work fast enough to stop us consuming. No, because the replacement then means you've got to build the plants in Scotland. If you're going to make your canned stuff, you've got to make it in Scotland. And of course, we're going to decide at some point, we don't want cans anymore. We want to have recyclable containers. We don't want people shucking stuff in the garbage bin. That is part of the whole issue. Of why we're having an ecological crisis in the first place, this linear production rather than to some extent circular. Uh, so, so all these things are going to come aboard, and they're all going to make these things more expensive. But certainly, in, in terms of viability, like comparing what happens if if you have a, a breakdown in relations between China and America, and therefore China decides to forget not forget about the export market, but uh, focus on its own own market and building a brick and alternative. Uh, China is in a far better situation to do it because it has a far broader manufacturing base than America does. But did, isn't it? Aren't we going through? A, a, I mean, people call it, you know a, a talking about all these things being inflationary. You know, it's so much more expensive now because of the supply chains. It's more expensive to get stuff into the country, so that's inflationary. But I mean, this is and you know, isn't it just a step change? And once once that step change has happened, because inflation is you know measuring the difference in prices, and if 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 prices go up, then that's inflationary. But it doesn't go on forever because you have you know the base effect. The next year, uh, thing unless they're continuing to go up at the same uh, you know or or escalating, you're going to see in, inflation start to slow. So we have a step change. Everything costs more, uh, but wages go up to compensate for that. Uh, and it all levels off at a, at a new level. So it's then becomes the case that, well, okay, does it really matter whether it's made locally or whether it's made in China? We, we've got a use to the idea that these things cost more, but relative to our salary, it's all evened out. It might take years for that to happen, but it's, it's going to reach a new point. And then that, that's the point where, the, you know, the domestic trade can develop. Are you pitching to take over writing Samuelson's textbook? <laughs> tell, tell, tell me what. Tell me who, when. With very, 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 very um, uh, dulcet uh, tones about uh, how it's got to be easy and we'll work it out on the long run. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite so sanguine, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, we, what, what we've what we'll see is a reversal of the reduction in cost caused by globalization over the last 40 years. And that will then... Uh, in some ways, that's actually justified the low increase in wages we've seen ever since the, the mid 1970s. The, the, when you look at the, you know, that, that classic chart showing the divergence between productivity and wages beginning in 1974, and uh, and so you, you'd be able to get away with that because prices have also been 
not not rising as rapidly as they would have done without globalization and therefore the lower wages for workers in the west have been compensated by lower prices of goods which are produced in the third world and and that has meant you've got this you know 40 years of workers accepting uh you know low low wage increases because well prices aren't as high either so it, it sort of evens out but now when you try to reverse that um, you're going to have enormous struggles over the distribution of income in Western societies, which we have put the foot on for the last 40 years. And we're seeing that already because you know, people are saying, oh, there's a wage price spiral. And the workers' response in, in the UK is, no, there isn't. The prices are way ahead of us. With not the rising wages are causing prices to rise. We're having wages rising less than prices. And the, what the movement's called enough is enough uh, that's just started in the UK about two or three mm, weeks yeah. ago. You know, people, when people are saying, well, we're not yeah. going to pay our energy bills is what they're saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't, pay, can't afford to pay the bills and we and our wages are too low. So we've, we've really put the, you know, you know the globalisation, the whole evolution of the BRICS, uh, which has been driven by Western capitalism trying to exploit low wages in the third world, doing it successfully for 40 years, but therefore, certainly in the case of China, driving up wages over there so that particular cost advantage has gone but over that 40-year period china has radically improved its capacity to manufacture virtually everything except as it happens uh, semiconductors which are made offshore in taiwan um but they've 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 got an industrial capacity which america has now lost yeah the, 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 question, is, the question about taiwan is is an interesting one as well isn't it because if you know, we we can uh, pontificate about how how this is going to play out, but is uh, it, it, you know, if those BRICS nations are uh, form a, a strong alliance against them amongst themselves and against the West, is that the the the, the step at which that China starts to say, well, Taiwan's really ours, and hey, look, we get chip manufacturing as part and parcel of the bargain. Well, I mean, that's another wild card. I wouldn't like to speculate upon, frankly. I mean, the whole. I mean, it was weird enough seeing Russia invade Ukraine. Is it this year? I'm getting to lose track. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This it's only been going this year. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to imagine what happens if China tries to invade Taiwan next year. But ironically, the, the crazy thing about that particular thing, I mean, the, the most vital thing that Taiwan produces for the global economy happens to be microprocessors. So they've got they've got the the market by the balls in terms of uh, you know, of uh, production of semiconductors. But the, there's only do you realize this is again one of these crazy factoids about the global economy. The company that produces the the there's only one company making the technology that makes the chips, and that's actually a Dutch company. That is just bizarre. It's, so there's no reason why it hasn't to be Taiwan that produces these. It happens to be Taiwan that then bought these machines, and then it, it, it's it's the location on the global economy in which semiconductors are made because they've effectively monopolize the buying of the there's, there's a couple of other companies that have bought these machines but i mean talking incredible machines as well the, the level of technology needed to be yeah. able to precisely lay down uh, semiconductor roots on on uh, silicon substrates at an enormous volume and low cost um it, it's, a, it's it's one company has got the global lead. It's a Dutch. It's a Dutch but I, company. I guess it, it's but the, the ecosystem, though, isn't it, that exists in China? So that you know that over the decades they've developed uh, you know these hubs, like you know Shenzhen is the is the hub for the electronics industry. So supply chains work better because mm. companies in that supply chain are close by, 
And if you were to see, it's not as straightforward as saying, oh, let's buy the machine and do it ourselves. You've got to have the whole ecosystem around it. And that could take decades to replicate. Yeah, yeah you've got to know how yeah. to put that, put the whole yeah. thing together. I mean, there's one thing I, I laugh about neoclassicals talking about how things in called carefully controlled environments won't be affected by climate change. Yes, they're carefully controlled environments. And part of that involves air conditioning, which has been tailored to the current climate. So if you change the climate, you mean that machines don't work anymore and bang, you can't produce microprocessors. Um, so yeah, but in, in Taiwan has it, it is in, in, the specialization is both a blessing and a curse. And with the degree of specialization we have in the global economy, we have one country, one company producing 100% of the machines that make microprocessors of that scale, the very, very tiny uh, sub-micron scale. I really don't know the actual scale they operate down to. I lose track after time. But the smallest level circuitry, therefore the highest density of chips, the highest quality coming out, one company makes those machines, one country has monopolized by specialization, the ecosystem that makes that thing feasible, and we're all dependent upon it, and that country happens to be one on the border of a big country that wants to invade them. Wow, that's what I call a sustainable situation. <laughs> but at least the machines are made by someone, you know, it becomes an us and them uh, approach that we see for, you know, for the, for the rest of this century. At least... That machine is made by someone on our side, unless unless it becomes the unless it becomes the <laughs> Brinks nations, and we have Brazil, Russia, India, the Netherlands, and China. Let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but look, there's uh, lots more to explore. Uh, we, I want to look more at this idea of a, a reserve currency, but also, you know, have we just been buying bad stuff from China? Is that relationship bad for the environment? We've we've still got that to come on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. this week looking at the BRICS nations will they go it alone or will we trade with them less and is that necessarily a bad thing well in the short term it might be but look in the long term Steve I mean it is not a, a, a great relationship is it in terms of as far as the planet is concerned so we talked about renewables before and about you know delivering fish in cans and how crazy that was that it was transported all around the world and of course you know even just the idea of a can itself rather than some sort of renewable material but, I mean, uh, the labor cost advantage is whittling away in China, isn't it? But companies have gone there because there's very little compliance. So that's an advantage for, for, for business. They could do things there uh, in, that wouldn't be possible in the West, like paying injury uh, compensation or insurance, for example. You know, ethically, it's not very good. But also, it's lousy for the planet. So, you know, if you are looking at global supply chains, uh, just how much extra 
carbon is that pushing into the atmosphere and would we be better bringing more stuff home so that we can control the behavior and uh, and ensure that we are uh, developing an ecosystem that is better for the planet yeah a large part of the low cost we've got out of this whole process in the last 40 years has been completely ignoring those vital issues for the long-term sustainability of capitalism and that's that's the scary thing capitalism you know capitalism without constraints will end up destroying itself and and we, we, and this is the danger that we now face and but in that situation once it starts to happen which country is a better place to be able to maintain their own uh, productive capacities and my i'm just you know, I know a whole lot of other hassle with china but in terms of being able to produce what you need domestically china is well ahead of the united states and so if, if we look at these trade wars coming out, the attempt to build an alternative currency system for international trade to the US dollar, um, but also domestic self-sufficiency, uh, America's main advantage here is the sheer scale and how long it's been It's been of that scale. Uh, it's still, I mean, you talked about the level of imports that it has. The level of imports compared to GDP in America is still, I think, one of the lowest in the world because it has, has been such a self-sufficient uh, for, for so long, but they've outsourced a lot of that over the last 40 years, and now they'll pay the price for it if they try to bring it back on shore. Well, China, it looks like, you know, what they're getting from the US, I mean, they're getting uh, they're getting electric equipment back as well, probably the stuff that they've made, just stuck in a nice box uh, with a manual added, uh, $22 billion uh, worth of that, uh, mineral fuels, oils, distillation products, stuff like that, machinery, uh, they're sending some of that uh, their way, and then $18 billion in uh, some foodstuffs, oil, seed, fruits, grains, seeds, fruits, uh, I said fruits twice there. They must take it. They, they eat well. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, China, if, if you had BRICS nations working together, I mean, there's plenty of that, isn't there? You know, I mean, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. They've got all the agricultural land. You know, perhaps they had that in, in view for this new world order that they're planning amongst themselves. I'm being very paranoid here. Uh, but you, you hear, but you hear some of the stuff that Putin's been saying, talking to these other leaders, and you, you can't help feeling there's something going on. Well, there are elements of that. I mean, it, it, I never deny the existence of conspiracies. What I deny is whether the conspirators know what the hell they're doing. Um, so mm. the outcomes are always rather different to what they expect. And I think that the classic for Putin is it's taken a bit more than three days to conquer Ukraine. So, um, yeah, the, the, those things can go wrong. But, you know, what's, what's driving a lot of this is that, well, I think America's financial system is the, is the part of America that's benefited out of dominating the global financial exchange system by having the US dollar as the international currency. Yeah. Um, and, and they're finally the, pissed the, off about it. But bit also because they, they try to make they try to make the payment system as a weapon. So when you I've forgotten when it actually began, but with SWIFT they tried to block Russia out of SWIFT and China out of SWIFT at one point. Uh, meaning that you could if, if because they control the financial system and, and SWIFT being the, the telecommunications units used for international banking, then if you get blocked off SWIFT, you can't trade anymore. And, and that, I think, that was a huge tactical mistake to do that because that has then inspired the BRIC country to say, well, we need to have our own alternative payment system. And like one of the, the cleverest things that Putin did in terms of the invasion of Ukraine was to say, if you want to buy Russian oil, you've got to pay in rubles. And suddenly you've broken down that that control that Americans could have had over the purchasing of goods from Russia uh, in, in, in the vital good of energy. Um, so 
there are a lot of ways in which I think America stimulated itself by the short-term focus on profitability, meaning that's why they went for globalization back in the, the 80s and 90s. And now they're paying for it, both in terms of diminished uh, domestic production capacity, less a far less educated workforce, and then now inspiring the, the BRIC countries to bring about their own international payment system. So that source of potential blackmail is removed. Yeah. And Putin is the one who's championing that, obviously. And you can imagine that, uh, well, you know, you've got a right, a right wing uh, crazed lunatic in Brazil right now. Uh, China, we know, uh, you know, Xi and uh, Putin have been uh, talking and you know india i guess also looking at what its place is in this in this new world so i mean it could easily come off couldn't it this idea of their own reserve currency he's saying putin says you know backed by precious metals uh, do, do they need to do that I'm not really quite sure and then yes the other thing is as you say their own mechanism for international payments i mean they basically want to cut themselves out of their reliance on the western financial system don't they that's what they're doing and that's the only part of america that benefited from America being the reserve currency. Again, if you go back to Bretton Woods, Keynes's idea was to have a internationally created currency called the Bancor, and the Bancor would be issued by what became the International Monetary Fund, and it would be issued in proportion to the scale of uh, the economy. So America would have got the lion's share of Bancor. England would have been number two back in those days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you would have fixed exchange rates. And if you ran a balance of trade deficit, you would run out of Bancor, so you'd be forced to devalue. But equally, if you ran a balance of trade surplus, there'd be interest charges put on that, which would be used to provide fund for developing economies. And, and that vision was to mean that there was no country dominating the international payment system. And it would have worked far better than what we got um, because one of the dangers, and, and Yanis Varoufakis writes very well about this in the Global Minotaur, one of the dangers of being the reserve currency is that, the, that other countries have a demand for your currency over and above their desire to buy your goods. So you you want American dollars, just like you, you use British pounds more for trade than for buying British goods. Uh, you also wanted American dollars more for trade than buying American goods. And you get an overvalued currency, which means your manufacturing sector and your other parts which you're trying to export are less competitive with the rest of the world. So you end up with a trade deficit. And that's the situation America has been in. So uh, I would prefer to see a currency based on at least on a basket of, of countries rather than a single currency that reduces the odds for it happening. It's a bit more like Keynes's original proposal. So I'm actually in favour of the BRICS having their own alternative payment system because we should never have had the American dollar as a reserve currency in the first place. So what was in the short term, if they did that, what impact uh, would that have? Would it, would it weaken the US dollar? And, you know, yeah, quite, yeah. A, quite markedly, I, I would imagine. And what, what would that do to America and the world price for goods and energy and the like? Well, it would I mean American currency falls in value. It would actually give a, a competitive advantage to America for exports, uh, uh, which, it, which it needs uh, because, you know, the, again, part of this debilitated manufacturing sector, and part of the reason why they should buy the Chinese goods more, more easily when they outsource production to China is they were buying, using, buying with overinflated American dollars. The American pieces of paper were worth too much. So it would actually force them back into having a focus on in developing the manufacturing sector again, which would be a bit of a change from developing the Rust Belt instead. So, but in the short term, yes, you know, fall of falling American dollar value, therefore higher prices of goods they're importing that they used to manufacture domestically. 
So, and there's a bit of strength in those BRICS nations. They account for 26% of the world's oil output, 50% of iron ore production, which obviously is used to, to make steel, uh, which is important for China. They uh, produce about 40% of uh, global corn production, 46% of global wheat production. So, I mean, they've got, you know, they've got the, the, they're dominating a lot of those markets. I guess, you know, you could say, well, OK, the rest of the world, actually, if it's less than 50 percent, the rest of the world still has more of those things. But of course, you know, it's, it's a much more. Well, actually, no, it's, this is a large part of the population, of course, isn't it, of the world. They, 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 they are still going to need to trade with us. Yeah, uh, but, the, but the, the, certainly China has been incredibly successful in industrialising in this process. I've seen the contrast because I you know, happen to be. Uh, ages ago, back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, I was working in overseas aid and I got into my head the idea of running seminars between journalists from third world countries and Western countries uh, where they'd compare the coverage of each country in the other's press as part of a way of, of you know, breaking down the extent to which we think about other countries ideologically rather than based on their real historical circumstances. So I took a group of Australian journalists to China uh, for a, a seminar where they reviewed one year of Chinese coverage of Australia and one year of Australian coverage of China on uh, a range of different uh, areas. It was quite a, a fantastic seminar, if I must say so myself. But after it, we went on a tour of China at that time and we saw the state of China's factories. Now, we actually saw a Chinese factory when light bulbs were made by hand. Uh, you know, the hand blower blowing and, and placing the, the fibre inside the incandescent light bulb, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, incredibly primitive technology. And the whole idea of, from China's point of view, of the industrialization process and the opening up of free trade zones that they did was to get American technology as fast as possible. And they succeeded. And now when you look at the, the, the level of Chinese technology in, in a vast a vast number of industries, it's equal to or superior to American technology. So that focus on getting the technology and in developing the economy has worked massively. And when you go and spend time, I've been in, I've been in Sichuan uh, in 1981, I think it was, December 1981. And I've been back uh, 30, 40, 30 years later and 35 years later and seen the standard of living. And it is astronomically better. So the Chinese... Uh, Public, whatever people might say about the, you know, dominated by the Communist Party and uh, you know, Big Brother is watching you type stuff. And the physical standards of the Chinese people has risen dramatically, and that's a major reason why they end up supporting Xi, despite the fact that he seems like a throwback to Mao in many ways. So China's done very well out of this, better than any other country in the so-called list of the BRICS. Uh, and and but in, in, and when it comes to what's sustainable for the future, there's a conflict and China is far more sustainable as an economy now in terms of its capacity to produce what it needs domestically than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So here's the America is less so. Yeah, I would, I, I, and you know that applies, you know, to to a lot of other countries as well. You know, it's if we had the BRICS nations versus the rest of the world, a lot of the rest of the world are capitalist nations that aren't doing so well. These BRICS nations are by and large centralized economies so what does that do to the to the pattern of of global trading you know if we uh if we can't pursue uh you know can we pursue capitalism if we're trading with others that are not you know if they are subsidizing or they are buying up like for example the you know 
farmland being uh, bought up overseas by companies that are basically funded by the by the Chinese government, which is you know money that the Chinese government has created. I mean, it distorts the whole market, doesn't it? I mean, it has obviously historically, uh, but but going forwards, if we've got these you know two sides of the world competing against each other, and one of them is very centralised in it, in it, in its approach. I mean, they've got a bit of an unfair advantage. It sounds a bit of a crazy thing to say. They've got an unfair advantage because they're not relying on capitalism, which doesn't sound right, perhaps. <laughs> well, according to theory, they should be doing worse. You know, yes. But the reality is that the, it, it, it meant uh, much more effective public, uh, public investment and, and transportation, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, the, where you've got the degradation of the same facilities in America. So it's... a uh, you know the, the the textbook hasn't hasn't given you the answer. It, it didn't predict the future all that accurately, um, but yeah, I mean it it, it is it, America has stimulated itself very very badly by outsourcing its productive capability, and uh, whereas the Chinese in particular, I'm not so sure about India or uh, or Brazil or certainly for that matter Russia, but the China's success in industrialising. Uh, has come at the expense of American capitalism. So listen, we, we hopefully we've got some new listeners to the podcast. Now it's available free every week. And uh, those people will learn very quickly that I, I tend to have an, a more optimistic view of the future than Steve does. But then you mm-hmm. might also come to the conclusion that my views are largely unrealistic and Steve's perhaps are uh, more on the money. But I look at all of this and I think, well, you know, the reasons why we've got this divide happening, you know, is, as we said before, it's the it's it's those nations are concerned about the dominance of the Western financial system and they want to develop their own system so they can they can go it alone. We've got the concern uh, that we want to move forward in a more sustainable way. And we might be worried about the way that they are going to move forward because they're going to have less focus on sustainability and and, and more on uh, and more on, on, on growth, particularly when you've got large countries with poor populations that they want to see moving up to to the middle class. Uh, You know, we don't have that issue to to contend with. I just wonder whether there's a middle ground where we actually say, well, yes, actually, we think a great idea that we have a a reserve currency, which is, you know, let's go back to to what Maynard Keynes was, uh, was saying all those years ago. Let's do that. Let's implement that. But let's also, you know, as on a global scale, Look at the planet as well, and try and find a, a model that's going to work for all of us. I mean, if, if we, if it would be a big move, wouldn't it, to say yes, let's move that reserve currency out of the United States and, and just have a global reserve currency? You don't need to do it for yourselves because we're, we're all going to be on board with that. Well, I think what it's, that particular argument shows is the real beneficiary of the America being the reserve currency has been its financial sector, not its manufacturing sector. Yeah, and. That is one reason why Americans find themselves complaining about you know, infrastructure breaking down and uh, and and not you know not having the skilled uh, workforce they need for the future. Um, so yeah, it's it, there's no way the American financial capital is so dominant in the overall American political scene that there's no way they would ever abandon having the American dollar as the reserve currency, even though I think it would be better for America as a whole to get rid of it. So you do need somebody coming in from the outside and say, well, we're going to produce our own system and and try to sideline you. And then that might actually force the Americans to the bargaining table over whether we have an international system dominated by the dollar or by a basket of currencies and get away from the bizarre balance of trade and balance of payments uh, gaps we have today. Yeah. So BRICS, bring it on then. 
basically is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, would, just trying to avoid all the, 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 the bit where you where you you know invade sovereign territories. Uh, that would be yeah, good. That'd be a good change. Yeah, you'd avoid that a bit. But yeah, on, on the rest of it, uh, the idea that you build your own uh, mechanism for international payments, your own reserve currency, go for your life. You reckon? Yeah, yeah, I want to see it happen. Yeah, well, I'm sure America doesn't, but sounds like they're not going to have much choice. Uh, good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again next week. Okay, bye. And thank you for listening. That's this week's edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, You can catch us all uh, every week at debunkingeconomics.com or on your favourite podcast app. Uh, Tell your friends about us. Now we are free and available for everyone. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics podcast. 